gaming is for everybody. Like that's the thesis here is games are wonderful. They're a medium that everyone should be welcomed into playing. Everyone should be feel welcomed at the table. You're listening to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast, the only leadership podcast run by undergraduate students dedicated to helping undergraduate students lead in diverse fields. From people in diplomacy to entertainment, from CEOs to student leaders, we feature people from all walks of life. It's all part of the mission. Here at the Messina Leadership Institute, we make leaders better. Hello and welcome to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast. My name is Kaida Jesus and today I'll be your host. Today I'm talking to Strix Beltran, Project Narrative Director for Hidden Path Entertainment. She graduated from the University of Tulsa with a bachelor's degree in environmental policy and boasts a master's degree in mythology from Pacifica Graduate Institute. She's also behind the award-winning game Bluebeard's Bride and the Gaming as Other Initiative, which seeks to make gaming more inclusive. Other writing credits include Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft for Dungeons and Dragons and State of Decay 2. Strix, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Kai. I'm excited to be here and to talk to you today. Okay, so my first question that I have for you today is that you started with this degree in environmental policy, and then you're now a game designer. Yeah. <laughs> freelance writer. Can you talk about that career path? Sure. So it's pretty winding, and, you know, anybody who works in my who works in games that is my generation or older, we did not have an educational path to games professional jobs. Like there was no such thing as a games degree in the time that I was in university. And no one who uh, works in games as an adult, you know, who is maybe age 30 and older has a games degree. They just, they did not exist. So all of us got there by circuitous routes, you know, really bizarre falling into it or discovering that we really loved it. And that's why a lot of game design professionals are weirdos, because we're not afraid to go off of the path that we thought we wanted. And that's really what happened to me. So when I was an undergraduate, I wanted to work for the EPA. I wanted to be an EPA lawyer. Climate change is extremely important to me and always has been. Um, Environmental impacts of the oil and gas industry and solid waste management were always important to me. My father actually used to work for Waste Management, which is a company based out of California, who, you know the Aaron Brockovich story? For our listeners, just like, tell them. Okay, well, it's a movie that you can go watch. It's with Julia Roberts. But basically, it's about this company that was putting toxic waste into vulnerable minority communities of color, mostly Latino, in California, in a place called Hanford. And, you know, it was bad. And we lived in Hanford, and that's where my father worked. So um, it's always been a kind of part of my life. And then... And then, so I graduated with a degree, and that was that was the 2008-2009 financial crisis. So there were no jobs. There just were none. Uh, and especially not in the EPA, because the government was on a hiring freeze. So, you know, I was like, okay, maybe it's just time to go to law school now. I will do that. And I sat down to take my LSAT, and I had a crisis of conscience, where I was like, oh no. Oh no, I don't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> I was literally in the room taking the LSAT when I had this realization and it was it was horrifying and freeing all at the same time because I don't know if you're like me but you know I I grew up from like you know not very well off you know interracial uh, Hispanic family and the only way I even got to college was through a scholarship an academic scholarship 
And I was, I was always taught, like, you have to succeed. You need to be a doctor, lawyer, and engineer. Otherwise, how are you going to take care of your parents? Like, all of that normal stuff. And so I'd always told myself I want to be a lawyer. But I wasn't necessarily right. Because I didn't take time to also listen to myself until, until the very last moment. <laughs> so I didn't go to law school. Instead, I went to the Peace Corps as an environmental volunteer in Ecuador. By the way, don't do the Peace Corps. Uh, it's not safe. But while I was there, I got involved with ethnographic studies, indigenous medicine, storytelling, mythology, which I had always been interested in, to be really clear. Like, I had studied myth independently as an undergrad. But it was like an awakening, and I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. I don't know how. I don't know why. I don't know where. But I came back home to States afterwards, and that's when I got my master's degree at Pacifica Graduate Institute in myth. And myth is really about storytelling and psychology and meaning. And uh, if you're a narrative designer like me, that is a really great underpinning in games to have. So, yep, that's that's the route. <laughs> you said that for adults of your generation, you there's no game path design. Do you think other people in the storytelling type of of degrees, do you think that they can go in the same direction as you if they get some sort of storytelling degree? Is that part of it? I mean, so one thing I think is important to make clear for working in games is I really don't think you ever need a degree to work in games. Learning to work in games is about learning to be constantly curious and always willing to learn more. Um, you have to develop that within yourself in order to be successful. And a games degree doesn't necessarily teach you that, right? You teach you that. Um, and so, you know, I often am like, hey, games is a really hard profession. The salaries are all over the place. The job security is all over the place. If you can get a degree in something else that you also like and can be, you know, a career fallback, maybe think about that. <laughs> because it is really dicey. Storytelling is storytelling. And, you know, I also worked in Hollywood briefly as kind of like a script doctor. And it was storytelling too, but it was different. And game storytelling is kind of like its own thing with its own skills. But if you have like the core soul, the thinking mind about stories, and you have that curiosity, then you should be able to succeed, right? If you're coming from an English department or theater or, you know, anywhere else, like it's not about your degree. It's about how you think about things. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And for those people that think they have that narrative soul that you just talked about, how do you, how do you foster that? Well, there's a lot of ways to do so. For me, personally speaking, I have to kind of cultivate a creative life of the mind all the time. So I'm a narrative director at my current job, as you mentioned, and I have to be generating good ideas all the time. And that means I also have to generate a lot of ideas that don't go anywhere all the time. So you can't just kind of sit around waiting for the right idea. You have to, you have to keep trying. So it's kind of like basketball where you just, you practice your layups over and over and over again. And then like some of them go in. It's kind of like the same idea with, uh, with narrative. So I have practices in my daily life. Like I do creative writing five minutes every day. Um, usually it's some kind of prompt, like, what if aliens took over the ocean, you know, and for five minutes I write about it. And that's it. And that's a practice anyone can do from anywhere, no matter how much time they have. But it keeps the mind going. 
Um, I also am involved with other stuff. Like I make music with synthesizers. I play the ukulele. I paint. I LARP. Um, you know, I'm constantly trying to be creative. And in some ways, be kind of childlike. And I don't mean immature. <laughs> I mean being willing to engage with imagination um, without being self-conscious, which is also a skill you have to learn. Not everyone is unselfconscious about being silly or pretending to be like a reindeer high on mushrooms. <laughs> so I say that without context, but there's this game that I recently played by another game designer that's called Moose Trip. And you just sit around pretending to be moose who have eaten, you know, magic mushrooms. It's really fun, but some people won't play it because they feel self-conscious. And I'm like, yeah, that's where you got to cut that out. <laughs> so a problem that a lot of creatives tend to have is just finishing work, whether they're like a writer who's writing their first novel or an artist that's making their first webcomic. And you've made indie games. Bluebeard's Bride is an indie game. How do you get that motivation to finish? Yeah, so perfection is the enemy of completion. My, my best advice is you plunge in, you do your first draft or your first round or your first iteration, and you do not stop to think. You just do it and it's ugly and it's snaggletoothed and it's broken and it's hideous and you are an awful person, but then it's done. And then you go back and you do the rest of the real work, which is editing, tweaking, balancing, and, and improving. A lot of people think they have to get it in the first shot and that will keep you from, from finishing it all. So don't do that. You know, I had a really big problem with this when I was younger and I wouldn't write anything because I'd be like, well, I can't make it as good as I want it to be. So I actually got, <laughs> I went to, I think, Borders or Barnes and Nobles. Borders closed now. But I found the ugliest notebook I could find. I mean, like, it was zebra print and it was fuzzy. Like, it was hideous. And I opened the front cover and I wrote, this is the ugly book. Ugly. And I put all of my, quote, ugly writing in there until it didn't feel so ugly anymore. So I gave myself permission to write ugly words and know that it was okay. Look, they have their own book for that. And that helped me break through those initial kind of feelings, those immaturities of like, well, everything I write is bad. Obviously, everything I write is not bad. Uh, my latest game uh, with Aconite, Hall of Vista, just won the Narrative Award for Indiecade. So you have to kind of build trust in yourself if you don't have it and just get the words out. I'm a huge proponent of making games more inclusive as well. And especially as someone that, that enjoys tabletop games and like video games, that's that sort of thing. To our listeners at home that aren't super aware of this problem, can you explain more problems, inclusivity in gaming that we have now? And what are the solutions to this? I mean, that's a very big subject that could have its own podcast, right? Um, so basically, in my day, when I was a kid, playing Dungeons and Dragons, I felt excluded by people who liked me, by my friends, by the people I went to school with, by people online, where it was clear that the game wasn't made for me, it was made for somebody else. And also, the people I were pl was playing with were doing things that hurt me, that made me feel excluded or unwanted or, you know, unwelcomed. And... Gaming is for everybody. Like that's the thesis here is games are wonderful 
They're a medium that everyone should be welcomed into playing. Everyone should be feel welcomed at the table. And so there are things we can do to get closer to that ideal, <laughs> right? Like, how do we make it so that, you know, a girl walking into a Tekken tournament doesn't feel like, oh my gosh, I need to leave. I'm the only girl here, right? Or how do we represent maybe like a Native American experience in a role-playing game that is in, not offensive, right? That doesn't hurt people. Because there's no reason why games should hurt people. They're supposed to be for fun. And if they aren't fun and they're hurting people, then they should change. That's That's pretty much it. So there are a lot of different ways to think about it, ways to solve these issues and, you know, levels of attack. Like, you know, do we change the content of the games? Do we change uh, or give more access to who can publish a game? Or do we change the rules around how social interactions work in gaming spaces? All of those are part of inclusivity. And I've worked on all of them. So in different ways, again, this could be a whole podcast. The basic is like, first do no harm. And if we can get there, that would be that would be really great. So a lot of that means, at least at the very least, building uh, minority perspectives, I think, into gaming. And then again, is across who makes them, what the content is, and how you actually interact with it, either in person or online, and the spaces where games exist and you engage with them. So I know it's really broad, but I think uh, drilling down into specifics would take a while. So if there's a particular area you want to talk about, I'm really happy to. I just, I need to like pick a zone. <laughs> Part of it is that we like, I'd like to provide more context for the listeners who might not all be acquainted with this. And that kind of goes into my next question, because I'm sure that for a lot of people that don't know anything about tabletop role-playing games, they just know Dungeons and Dragons. And then they know they can create basically any character they want in Dungeons and Dragons. They can make a black man, a white woman, an Indian non-binary person. So why do you think, because people can make essentially whatever character they want, why do you think that inclusivity in games hasn't really been solved yet, even though theoretically you can make any, like you can make them as diverse as you want. So how how has this not been solved? Whoa, what a question. Okay. So first of all, I, I work on a Dungeons and Dragons property. I, I like Dungeons and Dragons. However, Dungeons & Dragons is not the only role-playing game that exists. There, there are hundreds, there are thousands, they're all amazing. You know, go play them, play Monster Hearts, play Bluebeard's Bride, play, you know, Blades in the Dark. They, they're all going to give you something different and rich and interesting. And, you know, first of all, I think a single game cannot solve <laughs> inclusivity issues. It's unfair to ask the property to do that. It's impossible. And I don't really think that's the way we should be thinking about it. The, to address your question more specifically, just because you can make a, a non-binary Indian origin character in Dungeons & Dragons does not mean the game supports the cultural context that makes that feel authentic. So Dungeons & Dragons, as we all know, was invented by a group of white guys in the 70s who had a particular idea about the world and a way of thinking about the world. And... Intentional or not, those um, values are integrated into the structure of D&D. &D. What is D&D &D really about? 
well, I'm sure you've heard this maybe before, but one criticism of D&D is that it's kind of colonial in structure. You are adventurers, you are going forth, you are penetrating, you are conquering, right? Think about the verbs that you use to play Dungeons and Dragons. It's hit, it's cast, it's bow and arrow. Like, um, so this is a paradigm of thought. It is a paradigm of values. And when you're within a paradigm, you can only stretch it so far. And things do exist, values do exist outside of the paradigm um, that Dungeons and Dragons sets up that are non-Western, minority, uh, you know, or just like these guys in the 70s weren't interested in it. So it's not represented there. So D&D is a great game. Again, I love it. Childhood fan. This is my job every day as I work on D&D. But you also have to understand that when you only play D&D, you are cutting yourself off from all different kinds of role-playing experiences that you that it's just not set up for you to succeed well in trying out. And that's why you should have kind of like, you know, it's like food groups, like have a balanced diet of, of all the different kinds of games that are out there. So can you tell me more about how games can teach inclusivity oh, then? sure. So, you know, let's take Bluebeard's Bride, for example, since it's my game. So Bluebeard's Bride is a feminine horror game, which means you experience horror from what we create, the paradigm of the cultural context of being a feminine person in the world where patriarchy is a thing. And uh, this game for women and, and femme folks largely is very um, cathartic. I've had many players tell me like, oh, that was so cool. Like I felt so seen. It was really creepy and bad, but that's what it feels like. And this was really good. And then a lot of men and masculine folks, especially who have been traditionally masculine the whole lives, many of them play it and they kind of just go sheet white by the end. They're just, they're kind of like, they've been attacked by a vampire. And I, I asked them like, you know, how did the game go? Did you enjoy yourself? And they're like, yeah, that was really deep and intense. And is that what it's really like for women? And most of the women at the table are like, yeah, man, didn't you know? And the men are like, no, that was so intense. I love that game and I learned so much and I have a lot to think about and I'm never playing it again. <laughs> <laughs> so that right is an example of like really getting someone to absorb to feel in their minds and bodies this this minority experience they didn't have access to before and they may have been excellent people before that but now they have real like lived empathy for what that experience is like and maybe they care more or maybe it changes how they interact with other people or how they think about the patriarchy right um so that's just one very small example of like a game that teaches inclusivity, not because it's like this game is to teach you inclusivity. It's a horror game, right? You're there to have fun and be scared, but because of the way it's designed, you get that other piece too. So Bluebeard's Bride, like a lot of tabletop RPGs has a game master. In this case, it's the groundskeeper. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What responsibilities does a groundskeeper, a dungeon master, a game master have in promoting inclusivity in their games, whether they're white or a person So color? personally, I think everyone has that responsibility because there's also GM-less games, right? There's cooperative games, but it's everyone's responsibility at the table, not just the GMs, to make every player who is there welcomed that doesn't mean every character right you can play an evil character and the other characters can hate you but for the players they need to feel safe and welcomed and 
Uh, the GM is often seen as the leader and sets precedent, which is why there's possibly a little more pressure on them. But it's truly the responsibility of everyone at the table. And so if the GM does not promote inclusivity, then there may be players at their table who don't have a good time. And that breaks the cardinal rule of why we're all there, right? Or maybe players leave or maybe something bad happens. Like they have a bad scene where the GM should have drawn a line, but it got pushed and now they're really upset or they don't feel good. And again, everybody's responsibility, including the player who's having the bad time, right? They should probably leave or tell them like, you should stop doing that. That's always hard to do in that situation. But like the GM's kind of like the one who sets the tone for the game. So that's why it's important to set a tone that like, hey, we're all we're all friends here. We like each other. I want you to have a good time. I want me to have a good time. Here's how we can do that together. So how does a game master set these tones and what applications does it have outside of the game? Sure. So one of the things that I think is important for any long-term campaign, like not a one-shot, but something that's going to go on for a while, is a session zero. I don't know if you've heard of session zero before. I have, but not all of our listeners have. So session zero is like the game before the game. It's the time that you sit down and as players, not as characters, you discuss how the game can be fun for you. So that could be like, I want to play these kinds of characters, or I want to have this kind of tone, Cthulhu, or medieval, or whatever. And like, hey, here's the content I'm comfortable with. Murder is great. Sex really doesn't, mm -mm, very uncomfortable with any kinds of mentions about sex. So we're not going to do that. Or maybe someone has like a real life sense of arachnophobia. So there are no giant spiders or driders or any of those creatures in this particular campaign because that player would just genuinely be upset and unhappy. So basically it's communication, right? It's a social agreement. Here's what works for all of us. And here are the things that will make some of us not have fun. And as a group, we've decided to honor those boundaries of everyone present so that we together can have a good time. And, you know, one one thing that some GMs do that I've seen most of them grow out of uh, is um, that's very unfriendly that they may not realize they're doing it is inappropriate accents. So a lot of times GMs will do accents to distinguish the NPCs they're playing. And that's fine. Like accents can be fun. But if your accent is based on a racial stereotype, like Chinese people talk like this, or Mexican people talk like this, you want to avoid that. A better way to represent NPCs of minority or particular ethnic origins is to represent their, again, ideals and values. So maybe someone from a particular culture that's an NPC talks about honor more often, or they talk about, you know, uh, the things that matter to their culture more often. So that way you know, ah, I understand where they're from, without the, the very uh, demeaning uh, uh, accents that can that can be kind of inserted without thought. Like, I know they're not malicious, but they, they can be really offensive. <laughs> so how does this translate, or can this even translate to outside of the game, outside of the table? I think so. I mean, if we are all actually communicating with each other, and respecting each other's boundaries and listening to each other and agreeing that we want the best for each other in real life, like I think we'd have a lot better time, <laughs> you know? So 
I know that a problem that a lot of people have with horror is the exploitation of women. And for those who don't know the origin of Bluebeard's Bride, the original fairy tale is about violence towards women. And how does that tale of exploitation of, and torture of women become a feminist horror tale? I think it's about ownership. You know, who gets to tell the story? If I mean, for instance, if we think about ex- horror exploitation films in the 1980s, which were about, let's like, look at all the high school girls and then chop them up. Who, 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 isn't that exciting and neurotic? Yuck. That's very different, very different from what Bluebeard's Bride does, which makes you live the experience of the people going through those things and have empathy for that and feel the feeling of heaviness and terror of like, this is my life and I can't escape. You know, many, many games are, um, you know, about power fantasies, um, which is typically a very masculine way of looking at things. Like, I go forth, I conquer, I smash. Dungeons Dragons is built that way. Bluebeard's Bride is the opposite of a power fantasy. It is literally about how you cannot hurt anything enough to make it stop hurting you. When you hurt it, it hurts you too. And so it really makes you kind of stare in the face, like the horror of when you aren't powerful enough to overcome the thing, right? So that's very feminist because that represents like a real lived experience that we're going to make you sit with and you're going to enjoy it because you're scared and that's fun. But also like this is true to, you know, what those lived experiences of this minority group really feels like. So it's about putting the players, whether they're male or female or somewhere in between, putting them in female people's or femme presenting people's shoes. That, that is correct? correct. You've got it. What do you hope people can get out of this game, whatever their gender is? Yeah, I mean, for Bluebeard's Bride in particular, it's built so that everyone can play it. It doesn't matter what, what their gender or sexual orientation is or their ethnic status The hope is, one, again, cardinal rule, that they have fun. If they didn't have fun, we didn't do our job and uh, or something didn't go right. So that's that's the main takeaway. I think the secondary function is we're actually giving you something really real to feel and to look at and to explore. Real and dark and terrifying. And if you are up for that kind of intense experience, right? Because not everybody is. And if you're not, you shouldn't play Bluebeard's Bride and that's fine. But if you are, here is this content, here's this material, here's this piece of soul that is, it's true, that's authentic. And here's your chance to really engage with it. And if you, if you feel catharsis from that, if you learn something new from that, if you're like, man, that's the scariest I've ever been in a tabletop game, wasn't that great? Those are all wins for us. So thank you so much for joining me on the show to talk about inclusivity in games, your path towards here. I do have just one slash two more questions for you. And that is, what thought leaders do you follow in social media or the news? And what books, podcasts, and other media do you suggest for leaders like yourself? Okay, you'll probably have to ask the second one again, because I'm just remembering the first one. So who do I follow? Tanya Short who is the leader of Kit Fox Games, is an amazing, amazing narrative designer, thinker, and is hardworking CEO. And um, I I respect her a lot. She's great. Uh, She has a great Twitter. She's always saying really interesting things. I follow Clive Barker. (laughs) 
you know, he, he did Hellraiser and a Magicka and a bunch of other stuff. And uh, he's a weird dude, but he's really creative. And I just kind of like want to see what's going on with him all the time. Who else do I follow? I mean, I feel bad because I'm going to leave people out. And they're going to be like, don't you? Don't you value me, Strix? Um, but I'm so I'm very entrenched in game design Twitter, uh, where there's a lot of people like Osama Doris and Lee Alexander um, and Jill Murray, who and many other people who who are always saying something interesting and valuable. And so, you know, expand your network, find these people and, and listen to them. So if we're talking about leadership and thought leaders, um, recently I have been really interested in books, podcasts, media on on leadership, but particularly about um, from leading where you are. And, you know, as a director, I'm a leader, but you don't have to be a director or a CEO or a creative lead to, to lead. The principle of leading from where you are is kind of like, taking responsibility for like kind of like your environment and your context in your area and yourself and deciding how you can can best like be a force for good from wherever you are at. So whether you're a student or, um, you know, a professor or wherever, it's like, how, you know, how do I lead my group? How do I lead the people around me? And that doesn't mean being bossy or telling them what to do, but like, you know, showing calmness and strength and authentic emotions. Because, like, you can't just be, like, positive, right? Toxic toxic positivity and be like, everything is great. We're going to win. We're doing wonderful. But it's about, like, seeing people, acknowledging them, and, like, providing a place of stability uh, to help guide things into the future. So I'm researching books. I don't have any on my approved list yet. But, uh, but that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> <laughs> so once again, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. And we'll see you next week. On behalf of everyone at the Vasita Leadership Institute, I'd like to thank the podcast team, 89.5 FM WSOU for allowing us to use their facilities and you for listening. Follow us online at www.shu.edu backslash leadership on Instagram at Vasita Leaders and on Twitter at SHU Leadership. At Seton Hall, We make leaders better.